Well, good afternoon, church. Good to, be with you. good to be with you back again here uh, from the pulpit. It was a pleasure to serve with you all these last couple of weeks, uh, both at Party on the Porch and then also as our missionary Tim Carnes was uh, here and preached the Word, a wonderful Word last week. It's great to be back with you to open up to the book of Acts again, where we've been now, boy, for about a year and a half now. And we're going to be picking up where we left off last time in Acts chapter 18, which had us considering Paul's work, his missionary work, in the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth, which was in Greece, where Paul was actively pursuing people, uh, individuals, with the, word of the, uh, with the word of the gospel in order that they would be able to hear it by faith and respond to it in repentance and receive the salvation that alone comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 18, where we will pick up where we left off again in verse 5, in order that we could once again consider how Paul, being preoccupied with the Word of God, equipped him in his evangelism. Now, there's much that we learned that I'll review from a couple of weeks ago, since it was some time be- uh, since we have heard about that. But uh, as it is, we also have two new, two new ways in which the Word of God equipped Paul in evangelism to consider here this week, and we read them in verses 5 to verse 11. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time once again that we come to your word and to be able to be instructed by it, Lord, to be able to be uh, just filled by it, Lord, to be able to be just amazed uh, at the glorious truths that are before us. God, we thank you for this wonderful word that you have before us today, and and I ask that you would impart to us uh, great wisdom and knowledge and insight that we would be able to apply it uh, to our evangelistic work that you are calling each of us to do by your Spirit's power. Lord, we know that you have called, we know that you have, have called us to, to, to witness to the ends of the earth, and I ask, Lord, for your blessing upon us now that as we come under the conviction of your word, that your spirit would teach us just what it looks like to be able to be equipped by your word to, to face every single aspect that we will face in our evangelistic work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, how important of a work is evangelism? You ask yourself, how great of a responsibility should I see in my life to be a witness to the ends of the earth, that is, if you are a believer. How, how important is it for me as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to be taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? You say, why answer a question such as this? Is it even necessary or important that we uh, determine what our importance is or what our responsibility is to the Great Commission that Jesus Christ has given to us? I would say it absolutely is important, and for this reason, I believe that our awareness of the importance of evangelism will spur us to a greater witness, that it is not enough for us to just, you know, say, well, I know that I need to evangelize and to leave it at that. But rather, I think it is important that each of us consider from the Word of God, the entire Word of God, as to why it is important that we ought to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Why is it that God has called us to this? And and, and should I recognize this responsibility? Imagine if a new believer asked you why evangelism is so important. 
If a new believer came up to you and said, how great of a responsibility should I see in my call to fulfill the Great Commission? What would you say to them? How would you answer them? Would you even answer them? Does this, does this question demand a response? Well, absolutely it does, and, and it is for these three reasons that I was able to come up with. As I was thinking about this, if someone came to me and said, how great of a responsibility should I see in the Great Commission, in my own life, how, how much should I be pursuing unbelievers with the words of eternal life, I would give them these three answers. And now there's more than this. This is just three that I was able to come up with. The first is this. The first is that God has commanded that we evangelize. He has has commissioned us in the Great Commission, and therefore, because God has called us to it, we must obey His authoritative Word. The reason that evangelism is so important, but above everything else, is because God has called us to do that. And you say, well, well okay, I, I, well, He calls us to do a lot of things. Well, why is it important? You know, He calls us to do these things. Why should I respond to this? Well, because God, our Creator, the Savior, has not only called us to this, but really has privileged us with the opportunity to be the ambassadors to the eternal truth that He has brought about through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so first, we must evangelize because God has commanded us to evangelize. The second reason that I would give to someone is that because of the great truth that is found in the gospel, it is of necessity that we share it lest we face the displeasure of God. Because of the eternal truths that we have found by God's grace, it is of necessity that we share it lest we face the displeasure of God. Look to his words in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18 to 19. He says, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Very, very uh, telling words here. He tells the prophet Ezekiel, listen, you, you are required to warn the people, to warn the wicked of the wrath that is to come. And if they don't want to listen, that is on them. But what is on all of us, what is on all of those of us that God has commissioned to proclaim the gospel is this. We must proclaim it lest we face the displeasure of God. Consider also the example of the four lepers who were starving outside of the city of Samaria. This is in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3 to verse 9. It says, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. 
Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Here is a whole people who were starving to death. They said, well, if we stay outside of this city, we're going to die because we got no food. If we go into the city, we know that there's food, but we also know the Syrians are here. So, well, whether we stay out here, we die, or whether we go in, we might die. So let's just take the risk and go into the city. They go into the city, and they realize that everyone's gone. But what's left behind is all of this food, and they say, we cannot keep this good news to ourselves. It would be foolish of us to keep this good news to ourselves. We must go and tell everyone about what the Lord has done for us in providing us the food that we needed. And this is good. It's good to tell people when you have food. This is if a place is in a famine, you want to tell people that they need food. But the reality for us is, is that we have found the bread of life. We found the bread of life, and so we don't need to tell people about some food that we have found, but rather we can tell them about the bread of life that we have found, that the responsibility, the truth that we have come to know by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ cannot, cannot remain alone in our hearts, but rather it must spring forth from our lips because of the wondrous truth that it proclaims. Now, the third reason, then, that we can give to someone about the importance of evangelism is this. It is the only message. You see, man is in a desperate condition. We all know this. All of us who were apart, apart from Jesus Christ recognize that apart from Christ, we were in a desperate position, destined to spend an eternity in hell, separated from God, under His wrath, forever and ever, with no opportunity for escape. And yet, God in His infinite mercy and grace reached down and touched us and proclaimed the message of the gospel to us in order that we would be able to hear it, perceive it by faith, and respond to it with repentance, knowing that Jesus is the Lord who will save us from our sins. And so why is it important that we proclaim the message of the gospel? Because it is the only message that solves mankind's desperate condition. It's the only one. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. As Peter would also say in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so there you have it, three reasons why we must understand the responsibility that we have in evangelism. First is because God has commanded us. Second, if we do not do it, we face the displeasure of God. And third is that it is the only message. Now you might say, I know all of this. I know of the importance to evangelize. I realize it. I want to do it, but I just don't know how to be equipped to evangelize. It's not natural for me to do. I'm a shy person, or, or maybe I'm not uh, very uh, fine. Uh, I, I can't find the words that I'm trying to say to people. I need to be equipped by it. I know of my responsibility, but how can I be equipped to evangelize? You see, this is the great question of our day. The reality is, as many people err when they go to answer this question of how it is that I can be equipped to evangelize. You see, there are so many seminars out there. There's, there's books that write about the different ways in which we can evangelize. There's methods, there's modes, there's all sorts of things that people come up with in order to be a better evangelizer, thinking that if you follow these 10 steps to evangelism, you will be a better evangelist that next day, and you'll be able to go out there and you'll just proclaim the gospel, and everybody's going to be saved after you follow these 10 steps of the great evangelist who is, who is teaching you, whoever that might be. 
You see, we often err in the fact that we think that we're going to become a better evangelist because of some tactics or some seminars that we have learned about and that are going to teach us about evangelism. Now, I'm not discrediting these things, but what I am saying is this. If we wish to become more faithful evangelists, if we wish to be individuals who are, who are able to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, being equipped, being equipped to do this, the only place that we need to look is the Word of God. If we want to be equipped in evangelism, the only source that we need to be, able to, to be able to equip us in every area of evangelism is to consider God's Word. After all, we have this promise in His Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This verse has endless applications as it pertains to the Christian life. The Word of God is profitable for teaching. Teaching what? Teaching us how to evangelize. And the good news is, is that God has not scattered His teachings on how we can be faithful evangelists all throughout His Word where you need a concordance to look up here or there or, or some other place, but rather He has compiled in His Word one single book, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in which He is showing us how the church was evangelizing and how he, by his Spirit, was equipping them to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. You see, we have this whole book before us in the book of Acts, and all of it, all of it is telling us how the early church was able to, as they came under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to people who knew about the Bible, to people who didn't know about the Bible, to people who didn't want to hear, and to people who did want to hear. The Word of God was sufficient for them to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. They didn't need a seminar. They didn't need a tactic. They didn't need some emotional display. They didn't need a bunch of lights and sounds and dramas and everything else. They just needed the Word of God, and as the Word of God equipped them, they were able to be effective in evangelism. They were able to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. Now, coming to Acts chapter 18, we have a prime example before us to learn how God's Word equips us to evangelize. This is what we see the Word of God doing for Paul. Now, Paul, you say, well, Paul, he was a great, you know, I can't even compare to Paul. Paul was a man who was led by the same Spirit and the same Word that every single one of us have today. Now, certainly God equipped him maybe differently with his different uh, uh, speaking abilities and other things. But, but setting all that aside, Paul had the Spirit and Paul had the Word, and every one of us as believers have the Spirit and we have the Word of God. Therefore, we too can be equipped just as Paul was equipped to evangelize the lost. As we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, Paul was, test, or Paul was occupied with the Word as he found himself being in Corinth. Paul was occupied with the Word in, in, in such a way that, that this, is, this is to say that everything that he did in his evangelism and his dealing with people, everything that he did, he was equipped to do it because he was occupied with the Word of God. His preoccupation with the Word equipped him in his evangelistic work in many, many ways. Now, to review from a couple of weeks ago, there was two ways that we saw the Word of God equip Paul to evangelize, and if you weren't with us, I'll remind you of them now. The first was that his preoccupation with the Word of God led him to proclaim it as much as possible. There is this truth that as we read God's Word, and we come under the conviction of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God will compel us to proclaim it. We won't, we'll just say, you know, someone says, why, why did you say that? I don't know. I just was compelled to say it. I could not remain silent. There is this truth that as we read the Word of God and as the Spirit of God convicts our hearts to the truthfulness of the message that we are reading, we will be compelled to proclaim it. 
He did, and and Paul did this as we see in Acts chapter 18, verse 2 through verse 4, as he finds himself in Corinth. He meets Priscilla and and, uh, Aquila. He's he's spending time with them, but he's also uh, going into the synagogues every Sabbath to be able to proclaim the gospel message to these individuals. Paul was so preoccupied with the Word of God that it led him to proclaim it as much as possible. He just did. No matter what was happening, all the distractions, the job, everything, all of his life was overcome by this responsibility to proclaim the message of the gospel. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, we see this same attitude from Jeremiah. He says, if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I cannot. We just cannot stay silent. We must proclaim the message of the gospel. It's this idea that as we read about the mercy of God and the grace of God and the love of God and the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the justice of God, all of the attributes of God or or all of the different doctrines of Scripture, when we read them and we come under the conviction through the Spirit of God, we will just proclaim His Word. We also consider this fact as well, that one who is preoccupied with the Word of God will also testify to its truthfulness. We're not just shouting the Word at people. Don't just think that you're just going somewhere and you just start shouting the Word. You know, you can do that if you want, but there is this responsibility that we have to recognize that people are going to maybe want to challenge us on what we have said to them. And so not only are we proclaiming the Word, but we are also testifying to its truthfulness as we see Paul was doing in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. He was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, that they need not just take Paul's word for it, but rather they could open up the Scriptures. Paul would open up the Scriptures with them, and he would point to them in the Scriptures why and how and, and, and who the Messiah was going to be from the Old Testament prophecies, and he was going to show them through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, and if anyone is to put his life up against the Old Testament messianic prophecies, you would find that Jesus is indeed the one who was promised. Jesus is indeed the one who was promised, and if they profess their faith in him, they shall be saved. And so this is what Paul was doing. As he was preoccupied with the Word of God, the Word of God equipped him to not only proclaim it, proclaim it as much as possible in order that he could testify to its truthfulness. Now then, what are we going to come to find once again today as we pick up where we left off in verse 5? Two more truths. Two more truths that we are going to learn about Paul's witness that, 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 that Paul was equipped to evangelize because he knew the Word of God. That Paul in his evangelism, as he was just going out and faithfully proclaiming the message of the gospel, the Word of God was what equipped him. And it equipped him in two ways, both in responding to the opposition that was faced and also recognizing that there was going to be opposition as he was proclaiming the message of the gospel. The Word of God alone equipped Paul in these two areas of his evangelistic witness. I want to stop there because I want us to, before we look at that, I want us to just speak on this common objection that we hear often in our day. I'm saying right now that the Word of God is sufficient to equip us in evangelism. It is. This is, this is, the, this is the fact that I am stating. I make uh, no, uh, I, I don't need to uh, say, well, maybe it is, or, or this might be, or this might be helpful to you. I'm saying this is the only way that we need to be equipped in evangelism. But the naysayers might say this, well, you know, the Bible is an old text. Surely God cannot speak to our day. We may need a fresh word from God, or, or we may need some new tactics or new developments that will help us to be able to communicate the gospel to people in a way in which they will be able to perceive it more readily. 
The word is just an old text. It's outdated. It doesn't match with our culture. It doesn't matter, match with the context that we are in. And so, you know, we just need to set the word aside, and we can figure out how to reach people with the gospel in our own strength. This is nonsense, because God's word, as God has proclaimed in his word in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, tells us that his word is living and active, meaning that it continues it does not grow old. It does not need to be respoken. It does not need to be changed. There's nothing needs to be added to or taken away from it. It is effective to equip us in every single area in our lives, whether we are living back during the days of the Apostle Paul or we are living in the year 2022 today. The Word of God is sufficient for us as we seek to proclaim the message of the gospel. So what if people say it's an old text and it does not relate to people of our day? What I want us to notice as we see Paul here in Corinth is that the Word of God was just as relevant back then as it is for us now here in the year 2022. You see, where Paul is, he's in a place called Corinth, and we read that in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, as we think about Corinth, what we're going to see is Corinth was an awful lot like Los Angeles. Therefore, as we think about Corinth, as we apply what Paul is doing here to our own life in Los Angeles, we'll begin to find that, wow, the Word of God actually can equip me here because where Paul was in Corinth is the same thing that I'm dealing with here in Los Angeles in my day. You say, what was Corinth like? Well, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are three C's that can define it. It was a cosmopolitan city, it was a commercial city, and finally, it was a corrupt city. You say, that sounds an awful lot like Los Angeles. Well, it does, and, it, and you'll see that it is very much like Los Angeles or anywhere else in the world today. It's a cosmopolitan place, it's a commercial place, meaning it has business, and then finally, it is a corrupt place, meaning it was tainted by sin. The first is that it's cosmopolitan, in that it had people from all over, and in this, there were many diverse cultures living there, different religions, different uh, traditions, different ideologies. Paul goes there into Corinth, and he's dealing with all the types of people that we would find in our day here in Los Angeles. People uh, trying to maintain their own traditions, people who come from different classes, who are going on in their lives seeking to pursue their own goals, their own dreams, absenting themselves from God altogether, and Paul is seeking to meet them with the message of the gospel. Paul's dealing with people that we deal with every single day, certainly in a different area. We're not in Corinth. We're in Los Angeles. But this, the, the principle is the same. These people are just completely distracted by all of the different things in their upbringings, their cultures, their traditions, and yet the Word of God is going to be sufficient for Paul to reach them. Now, secondly, it was a commercial city. All sorts of distractions existed in Corinth through the area of work life. We think people are distracted here in Los Angeles with their work. Well, people in Corinth were just as distracted. Corinth was a seaport. It was a very busy seaport because where it was, is, uh, where it was, was it was situated on the narrow isthmus between the upper and main part of Greece and the area of the Peloponnese to the south. This meant all the boat traffic that needed to get from one place to the next needed to go through Corinth in order for it to get there. And so when Paul is there, or when anyone is there, you have sailors from all, all throughout the Roman world who are stopping off in Corinth, who are unloading their cargo in Corinth, or loading their cargo in Corinth. It's just a constant constant busyness. It's a city that never sleeps because the cargo is constantly coming in. And so it's a commercial city. But finally, it was a corrupt city. This is the city that had forsaken God entirely. Sin was rampant and idols abounded. To be a, to be a Corinthian, if you were not from Corinth, meant to be that you were an uh, individual who had the most perverted type of behavior. 
to Corinthianize was synonymous with uh, sexual immorality, adultery, lust, all the different types of sins that you can think of was associated with someone who was a Corinthian. In fact, in Corinth, atop the Acro-Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite who was the goddess of love. And what we know from history is that the, uh, the, 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 the prostitutes, or the priestesses as they were called, would minister from this temple of Aphrodite and also descend down from the Acrocorinth at night in order to give themselves over to the lust of the people in that city. It was a totally corrupt city, a city full of sin. And in fact, if you've been with us as we've gone through 1 Corinthians in the morning service with Pastor Richard, you know a little bit about what these Corinthian people were like. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. We get a description of what the Corinthians were like. They're adulterers, sexually immoral. They are uh, uh, idolaters, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. It was all types of people here. And, and if I didn't tell you this was Corinth, you would say, this is Los Angeles. And so for anyone who thinks, well, the Word of God is not going to be enough to equip me in the area of evangelism today in the year 2022, you are only mistaking yourself. The Word of God is just as practical now as it was during Paul's because we are going to meet the same types of people that Paul himself was meeting. And you say, well, how is it, how is it that the word equipped Paul here as we read of his experience today in Acts chapter 18, verse 5 to verse 11? Well, there's two more ways that we're going to see today, and then there's one final way that we'll see in the next week. But the two ways that we're going to see today is this, is both the Word of God prepares us for rejection and how to respond to it. The Word of God equips us, prepares us for rejection in evangelism and also how we ought to be responding to that rejection. Look to me to verse 5 to verse 8 as we remind ourselves of the text. It says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we see these two points here. The Word of God both prepares us for rejection and how to respond to it. And as we're going to see, as we've read here, Paul's response was entirely biblical. There's nothing that Paul did here that Paul would look back on and say, man, I, I was out of line here. There's nothing that Paul does here which, which should lead any of us to think that Paul was wrong in any way, shape, or form because Paul's response was entirely biblical. Now, how do we get to see Paul's response here? Well, as verse 5 tells us, Paul is engaged in evangelism and he is testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. As he always does, he goes into the city and he finds a common meeting place, generally to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And he goes into the synagogue and he's proclaiming the message of the gospel to these individuals. We don't know how long that he was there, we know, but we do know that as he was uh, proclaiming the message of the gospel and as his missionary partners Silas and also Timothy got there, we know that he became even busier in proclaiming the message of the gospel at the synagogues to both the Jews and to the God-fearers. And so Paul is actively engaged with his mission work as we read in verse 5. He is occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 
And at some point in time, we don't know when, Paul was here for about a year and a half, but at some point in time, Paul was proclaiming the message of the gospel in such a way that it angered the Jews so much so that they rejected him, and they rejected him quite violently. They didn't put their hands on him, but it was a concerted effort to reject Paul and to remove him from the synagogue and from the place in which he was proclaiming the message of the gospel to them, uh, to these people. And we know that they did so, it was a, a deliberate rejection because of the word that, Paul, uh, that, that Luke uses in verse 6 to tell us just how they rejected him. It says, and when they opposed and reviled him. These two words here are very important words that we consider for a moment. These words describe a deliberate effort on the part of the Jews and the God-fearers there to discredit both Paul and the message that he was proclaiming. This word opposed and, and reviled, the word opposed means to rise up in array against they sought to discredit the word of the gospel that Paul was seeking to proclaim because it says not only did they oppose him, meaning, you know, he's probably by himself or as Silas and Timothy are here now, and you've got probably 30 people around you, and they're saying, get out of here with that, shouting at you, trying to force you away from them in such a way that you will never come back. You'll be terrified, intimidated to not share the gospel with them any longer. And so they're, they're opposing him, but they're also reviling him. And this word revile is the same word that we use to, trans, to, to translate the word blaspheme. And so not only are they reviling Paul, probably calling him names, they're also reviling Jesus Christ, Paul's Savior. They're saying that man is worthless. That man is dead. That man could do nothing. Jesus can't save anyone. They're blaspheming the name of the only Savior. And so Paul is dealing with this rejection that he is facing here. He's dealing with this rejection, and he must know how to respond to it. Now, there's a number of ways you can respond to the rejection, but the way in which we see Paul doing here is a way in which we can take up if the Spirit of God leads us to do so. The way in which he does is very dramatic which leads people to say, well, Paul shouldn't have responded in this way because of its dramatic, dramatic, picturesque scene that we see happening here from verse 6 onward. It's dramatic, but, but really when we think about what Paul does here, he's merely responding to the same spirit energy that the individuals are giving to him. He's saying, you want to reject Jesus? You wish to oppose the only message of the gospel that will save you from your sins? Very well, I reject you now. Jesus rejects you now, and this is what Paul does as he responds to these individuals who are opposing and reviling the message that Paul is giving to them. And, and, and so what I want us to see here initially is that this rejection that they give to Paul is not just this one-off rejection. As we think about applying this type of response in our own evangelism, it's not just one time Paul went to them. It's not just he went there, tried to share the gospel, and they said, well, no, thank you. You didn't need a dramatic response. They say, no, thank you. Okay, you go to the next person. Here is Paul, and he is actively engaged with these individuals. Again, we don't know how long he is here, but we know that at some point in time, he was sharing the gospel message, and the Jews and the God-fearers had enough, and they opposed and reviled him. And so Paul, noting this serious and deliberate rejection that they give to him, Paul gives the Jews a dramatic response to show them just how foolish of a rejection this was. You say, what does Paul do? Well, he shakes the dust off his garments and says to them, your blood be on your own heads. I will go to the Gentiles. This is what he says in verse 6. He says, it says, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, what I want us to note is that each of these responses from Paul are entirely biblical. Paul has done nothing wrong here. He's not put a curse on them. He's not put a hex on them. He's, he's not done anything wrong. He is simply responding biblically. 
in the way in which God has, has equipped us to respond in His Word when we face a serious and deliberate rejection to the message of the gospel. You see, Paul needed to show them the seriousness of their own rejection and to show them just how serious it was. It was. Scripture had provided the necessary response. And so first, we see the response of Paul was to shake out his garments, to get all of the dust off of his garments. And you say, well, what does this come from? This comes from the very words of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, verse 10 and 11, Jesus says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come, he, come near. And so Paul, seeing that they were deliberate in their rejection, Paul was deliberate in his response. He shook the garments. He shook his garments out. Violent. You say, what does this look like? What does this look like? I don't want to interact. I don't want to act it out for you. But what I was thinking of when I'm reading about Paul shaking the dust off his garments is, is maybe it's a picture of, of someone who, who maybe has a bug on them and they're just violently scraping it off of them. You know, just this look like, I don't want what is on me on me any longer. I'm going to shake my clothes out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just run around. I'm not going to have any of this on me any longer. It's a very deliberate response that Paul gives. It's a very Jewish response that Paul gives. The Jews who see this response would immediately know what Paul was doing to them because it is the history of the Jewish people that what, what they would do as they were, and this is not all Jews, but this is the history, this is from the historian who says that it was the custom of Jews who were traveling from a Gentile town and going back into Jerusalem or Israel to a place in which they resided. It was a, it was a practice of them as they got, right before they got into their town that they were going into from the Gentile town to the Jewish land, what they would do is they would shake the dust off of their feet so that they would not bring any Gentile dust with them. They didn't want to defile the land, and Gentile dust was going to defile the land, and so they would shake the dust off of their feet in order that they would show that they were rejecting the Gentiles for their wickedness. This is exactly the picture that Paul is giving to the Jews and to the God-fearers here. They have rejected Jesus Christ. They need to know how great of a rejection it is that they are, that they are doing. That this is not just some, you know, okay, well, you want to reject Christ? Well, go on ahead and do that. This is not like, well, I'll just take it and leave it. You can just kind of be on yourself. Paul, Paul responds with a very dramatic response so they could see the foolishness of the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul doing this to them shows them that he will now no longer have anything to do with them, but also, and even greater than this, they would also face rejection from God because they had rejected his Messiah. They would, all, they would not hear from Paul any longer. He shook the dust off of his garments, and he went to the next place. He was not going to have anything to do with them any longer. He was going now to the Gentiles. Now, this is not to say that he would no longer speak to a Jew again. This is only to say that the emphasis of his ministry now changed because they did not want to hear what he was saying to him. And so he shakes out his garments and then says to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads.'" You see, on top of this fact that Paul was showing them the rejection, the rejection that they both received from himself and also that they would receive from God, he also says to them that he is not responsible for what they are getting themselves into. He is taking away any responsibility that he has to them, and he is saying, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. I have done what I was called to do. 
Paul tells them, as he tells them, uh, your blood be on your own heads, he uses biblical imagery that would have been immediately relevant to any Jew or God-fearer who had any knowledge or any recollection of the Old Testament Scriptures. This term, your blood be on your own heads, denotes responsibility or denotes the responsibility being taken away from the individual who is saying, your blood be on your own heads. It's a biblical, it's a biblical word, a biblical phrase, and you find it in, in Joshua, Judges, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and most memorably in Ezekiel. When Paul tells them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent, he is recounting to them the words of Ezekiel, the words of the prophet Ezekiel, who God spoke to and said, if you do not warn the wicked of the wrath that is to come, I will account their blood to be on your heads. But if you do warn them, and you warn them to flee from their wickedness and from the wrath that is to come, I will not hold you accountable to them. They would say, this man is calling us wicked. He's saying we're wicked because we are not receiving the Messiah. Paul wanted them to see the imagery there because they needed to know just how foolish of a rejection it was of them to reject Jesus Christ. And I'll read the words again in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33, 7-9. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them, a warning, or you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And so in this, Paul tells them that they will be responsible for the judgment that is to come upon them for their rejection of the Messiah. They are responsible for their rejection of the Messiah. But notice this also in Paul's response to them. Paul knew that he was not responsible for their response, but he was responsible to proclaim the message of the gospel to them. He knew that he was responsible to proclaim the message of the gospel to them because he says this to them, I am no longer responsible. I have done what I needed to do. God called me to proclaim the message of the gospel to you. You have rejected it. Therefore, I now am released from my responsibility to you. I will now go on and proclaim the message to others. You see, Paul was aware of his responsibility to proclaim the message of the gospel to people. This often is reversed in our day. We often are so concerned about the response of people that that they need to be saved that we don't ever get to the point of actually sharing the message of the gospel to them. We scare ourselves away from doing it entirely. We get this idea, well, I need to go and share the gospel with this person. Then you say, well, what if they, respond? What if they don't respond well? well? What if I don't know what to say to them? Or, or what if they reject me? Or, or what if they mock me? Or, or what if they already know? Or what if they've already heard? We come up with all of these objections that people are going to have, and we never fulfill our responsibility. We don't need to be concerned with their response. We need only to be concerned with proclaiming the message of the gospel to them. That is our responsibility, and if they don't respond, if they don't respond in faith, we can go to the next person. That's it. Our hands, we wash our hands with with the responsibility towards that individual. We go on to the next person, just as we see Paul doing here. Now, we certainly would like for them to respond in faith, but as we see clearly here, their failure to respond does not rest upon us. It is on them. And so Paul, knowing that he had fulfilled his responsibility to them in this effect, says, you are responsible for your rejection. The only person to blame is yourself. Your blood is on your own heads. You see, Paul was going to go on to someone who would listen. 
He was not going to waste his time with them any longer. He was not going to, you know, just kind of try to beat a dead horse a little longer and say, well, maybe they're just having a bad day. I'll go to them next time. No, he says, I'm done with you. You've rejected the gospel. You've rejected Jesus Christ. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This also was entirely biblical. Everything Paul is doing here is backed up with Scripture. Nothing he does, you can't just say, well, Paul introduced a new idea or a new thought. No, everything Paul is doing here is backed up by Scripture, even the fact that he says from now on he will go to the Gentiles. You see, this he did not on his own volition, but because it was God's will that he would do this. It was God's will that that he would take the gospel message no longer to the Jews only, but also to the Gentiles. And I'll show you that passage in just a few moments, but before we do that, I want to say something about this. Some take Paul's emphatic response to the Jews, uh, the rejection of the Jews here, to be an outright rejection. They say, Paul here, immediately, as he says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles, he has immediately said, I will never share the gospel with a Jewish person ever again. That is wrong. That is not the way we are to see this. Rather, the way in which we are to see this, as Paul is saying here, is a shift in emphasis of his ministry, specifically in Corinth. He would still later go on to share the gospel message to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. This is a one-time statement that he gives to a particular group of individuals where he says to them, I've shared the message with you. My responsibility is no longer on on you any longer. I'm going to the next individual. We don't need to say, well, I'm just going to pick a certain group of people to share the message to because this group of people doesn't listen to me. No, we, we, we take the people, not the group of people, but the individuals we've shared. If we shared with them, they don't wish to hear it, well, then we can go to the next. But that does not mean later on we see the same type of person and say, well, I'm not going to share with them because I already shared to their kind before. It's not the idea that Paul is getting at here. Rather, it's a shift in emphasis because those people did not want to hear. Now, you say, well, okay, Paul is saying to these individual Jews here that he's not going to share the message of the gospel with them any longer. You say, how far away did he go from the Jews here? It's quite comical to think about this. So many people take this passage and say, I don't need to share with the Jews any longer. It's comical to think about this as Paul, as he's saying, that I, I, as he says in verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. You say, well, how far away did he go from the Jews here? Well, verse 7 tells us he went next door to the house of Titus Justice, next door to the synagogue. And so he didn't go far from the Jews. He was merely saying, I'm not going to your synagogue any longer, but if you need to find me, I'll be right next door and I'll be glad to share the gospel with you. I'm not going out of my way to you any longer, but if you come to me, I will proclaim the message of the gospel. You see, as Paul is, is leaving here, as we think about what he's doing here, it's often that there's, there's this idea in our mind that Paul is very angry when he's saying this to them. It's just his anger, this anger that Paul's just so mad at the Jews because they don't want to hear the message of the gospel. I don't want us to think about it in that way because I don't think that Paul is responding in that way. We often think that, well, if they don't want to hear, we can be rude to them and say, your blood be on your own heads. You know, yelling at them, being foolish to them, making a scene out of their rejection. I don't think that that's what what Paul's doing here. I think that Paul, as he is walking away from them, as he is saying, your blood be on your own heads, from now on I will go to the Gentiles, I believe that this was one of the hardest things for Paul to be able to do. It's difficult. It's difficult to move on from an individual that we desire to see know the message of the gospel. But if they reject us and continue to reject us and we just keep beating a dead horse, it's only going to create more problems in our life and that individual's life. And so the best thing for us to do is to move on. That's difficult to do. It's not easy to do. You can imagine that Paul was walking away from them probably with tears in his eyes as he is saying to this, this to them, your rejection is on you. I don't want to do this, but you have forced my hand. I will now go 
to the Gentiles. I will now go to those who will actually hear. You say, well, this is hard. How can I do this? How can I walk away from someone who needs to hear the message of the gospel? Well, if you have done your part, if you proclaimed it to them, if you've gone to them and you've done Bible, read the Bible with them and prayed with them and, and earnestly sought them with the message of the gospel, if they don't want to hear it, you are not rejecting them. They have rejected the gospel and you are freed from your responsibility to them and you can go on to the next individual. You see, you must remember, we are not there the, any opportunity that we would have to share the message of the gospel. We must just give it, a, give it to God in prayer and wait for his timing to see another opportunity to proclaim the message to them. You see, how do I know that Paul, as he is walking away from these Jews here, is not angry, that he's not, you know, just frustrated and saying, finally, I get to stick it to the Jews here for rejecting Jesus Christ. How do I know this? Because Paul loved the Jews. Paul himself was a Jew. Paul himself loved his, his brothers by heritage. He yearned for their salvation. And so for Paul to walk away from these Jews here was not an easy thing to do. In the same way for us to walk away from someone who has rejected the message of the gospel will not be an easy thing for us to do, but it is a necessary thing for us to do because God is calling us as people reject to go to someone else who will listen. Listen to Paul's love for the Jews. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing ceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see, Paul, he did not, he did not, he probably took it to the last possible second before he finally said, my responsibility to them is done. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. But he needed to go. He needed to go. The Word of God prepared him for a time such as this. The Word of God prepared him for a time such as this. If they did not want to listen, he would go to someone else. You say, well, where does the Word of God prepare us for this? Where does God's Word prepare us for a time when he says, if they do not want to listen, go on to someone else? Well, look at the example from Acts chapter 13. You flip back a few chapters in your Bible with me. Acts 13, and we read from verse 44 to verse 47. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, Paul, he's rejected. Jesus is rejected with the message that Paul, Paul is rejected with the message of Jesus as he gives it to the Jews. They have deemed themselves unworthy of eternal life. No problem. God has directed them, if they don't want to hear it, to go on to the next people. Go on to the Gentiles. Proclaim the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, for they shall listen. This is what is quoted in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. It's not that just Paul just said, well, I'm just, you know, I don't want to talk to them anymore, and so I'm going to go to the next person. Paul probably would have spent his whole life only going to them were it not for the command of God to go also 
to the Gentiles. Everyone needs to hear the gospel message. It's not just to one group or to one person, but Jesus is able to be King of kings and Lord of lords to whomever calls out to him by grace through faith, believing in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus saves all. Jesus is able to save all. And Paul, if he was going to the Jews in a particular town and they didn't want to hear it, he would go to the Gentiles from that point on. Again, not totally removing himself from the responsibility of the Jews, but simply saying, my ministry focus will shift. I'll go to someone else. And that's all that we are seeking to, that's all I'm seeking to convey to you here as well. As someone rejects us, we don't need to get into a shouting match with them. You know, you don't need to beat them over the head with the Bible. You don't need to condemn them. You just go to someone else. But don't just do it abruptly. You know, you share it once and they say no and say, well, I'm giving up on you. No, continue. Continue to go to that person. There are some missionaries who have spent their entire life sharing the message of the gospel to a people who never respond. One missionary I learned about, he spent, I think, 40 years in India and only knew eight converts. So I'm not saying that, you know, you just you spend a week or two weeks or three weeks with someone and then you set them aside. Go until the Spirit of God releases you from responsibility to that individual. Go until God calls you to go to another person. You know, we, we, we just don't just get to say, well, okay, I'm done with this person, so I'm going to go. When God tells us he's done with us sharing the message to that person, then we go on to the next. But when God calls us to, to, to leave that person, we must obey and we must go to someone who will actually listen. You see, the reason for this is because God is not calling us to save people. As hard as that may be for us to understand, God's not calling for us to save people. We can tell someone till we're blue in the face, and that is not going to save them. We can say, repeat this prayer. Don't even believe it. Just repeat this prayer, and you'll be saved. No, God is not calling for us to save people. God is calling us to tell people about Jesus in order that they can profess faith in Jesus to be saved. And if they are unwilling to do that, God is not drawing them, and we can go on to the next person. We don't save anyone. Jesus saves. We are merely his instruments, his ambassadors to proclaim the message of the gospel that he himself gives. And we see from Paul's example here that this is a fruitful thing for us to do. That, to, uh, that uh, when you're rejected and, and when you respond with that rejection by, by just going on to the next person, that this creates fruit in the ministry work that you are attempting to do. In verse 7 to verse 8, we see the fruit of Paul leaving these Jews behind and going on into the, the home of Titus Justice. It says, and from there he left and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. This is incredible here. We see from this example that God's way brings blessings. Our way, not so much. God's way is what brings blessings. Paul was able to leave the synagogue, and yet after that, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, was saved. You say, well, well, people are going to be turned off by our response if we do it in that way that Paul does here. Not Crispus. God used that to draw Crispus to Paul. He maybe went over to Titus Justice's house and say, hey, Paul, there might be some truth to what you're talking about. Can you explain this to me again? Crispus, the leader of the synagogue. This is incredible. The man who was like a pastor of the church. It'd be like me going to a synagogue and being converted there. This is incredible news that happens to this man, Crispus. As, as Paul leaves, he says, you've rejected us. We'll go on to the next house. And, and, and these people just sought him out. And Paul shared the message with them. You see, God's way brings blessings. Our way, not so much. It only brings contention, shouting matches, fights. You know, it just brings about chaos. We're not looking to create chaos. We're not looking to be disturbers of the peace. If people don't want to hear, we don't need to get in an argument with them. We'll go on to the next individual. 
You say, how do I know what God wants me to do in evangelism then? How do I know how God's Word is going to equip me and evangelize? You say, I know that God's Word can equip me in evangelism, but what should I look? What should I read? What should I do as it pertains to God's Word to be equipped by Him in the evangelistic work that He is calling for me to do? Well, I'll give you a few ideas. Read His Word, memorize it, apply it, live it out. Read His Word, memorize it, apply it, and live it out. We often make things far more difficult than they need to be. You see, God is not a God of confusion. He speaks very clearly. We don't need to, you know, look at the Scripture and decipher the words and say, well, I think this is what God's telling me to do here as it pertains to evangelism. No, we read what God says. He speaks to us clearly. The Spirit gives us understanding of what the text says, and we apply it to our lives. And all that we have done in Acts is really just equip ourselves for evangelism. From Acts chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Acts chapter 28 till it closes, I think in verse 30, we're going to be equipped for evangelism. So you want to be equipped for evangelism? Read God's Word. Memorize it. Apply it and live it out in order that you would be able to be led by God and not by your own works or your own thoughts or your own ideas. Let God guide you. Let God be the one who equips you to evangelize in His Word. After all, the way of the Lord is perfect. We can trust Him in evangelism. We can trust Him in such a way that says, oh God, I don't, I don't need to you know, figure this out for myself, but as I give myself to Your Word, well then, I know that I will be able to faithfully witness to the ends of the earth. As I understand Your Word, You will equip me to evangelize. Now, how? Again, He equips us to both prepare for rejection and respond to it. We saw two earlier, a couple of weeks ago. Not only does he both prepare us for rejection and how to respond to it, but he also leads us by conviction through the Spirit of God to, to simply proclaim it as much as possible. And on top of that, he equips us to testify to its truthfulness. He, he leads us to be able to show people in the Old Testament and the New Testament how God's Word is true. And you say, how does God equip me in evangelism? Well, in every single way. In any way that you need to be equipped, God's Word will equip you for evangelism. And in the next week, what we're going to see is His words will also encourage us to be faithful in evangelism. It'll be faithful in evangelism. We're going to see in the next week in verse 9 to 11, I'll give you a little uh, uh, a precursor to that. Paul was growing weary in evangelism. It's not easy for anyone to do, but God equips him to be encouraged and evangelism to the point where Paul stays in Corinth for a year and six months when he was maybe ready, ready to throw in the towel or, or go to the next place or, or just say, I'm done with this altogether. God encouraged him to continue to be faithful in evangelism. Again, we'll see more about this in the coming week. But you say, how do I apply this passage today? How do I apply this passage today? You know, responding to, to, to the rejection. How do I apply this passage in my own life? Well, well uh, we talked about an awful lot. I was thinking about how we apply this passage today. I had some issues with this because we've talked about so much. You know, the question could be, how long should I evangelize a person before I go to someone else? Or when's the right time to shake out my garments, metaphorically speaking? Or should I be evangelizing Jews first and then Gentiles? How should we, evang or how should we apply this passage today? Well, I came to this conclusion that as good as it would be for us to consider these things, the one truth that I want us to take home from this passage today is this best way we can apply this message is to memorize God's Word. And the reason that I can say this is because it was Paul's memorization of God's Word that equipped him to evangelize. Paul didn't have a Bible in front of him. He didn't have the New Testament. He, maybe, he certainly had some of the Old Testament here, but not, certainly not in the easy way in which we can just open to it here. It was Paul's memorization of the Word of God that led him to be able to be equipped to proclaim the message of the gospel. 
remembering Ezekiel 33 or remembering Isaiah 49 or, or recalling the words of Jesus Christ that Jesus himself spoke to him as he taught him, as he taught Paul in the early days of his ministry. This is, this is what led Paul to be faithful to evangelize. It was his memory of God's word. And so, as we apply this passage today, we must also memorize God's word. Why? Because we cannot be equipped by what we do not know. You see, imagine Paul knew nothing. He didn't know anything. He just kind of went blindly into this, and he said, well, if someone rejects me, well, I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll just figure it out, or, or, or you know, maybe God will just, you know, move me around like a puppet. I, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but, you know, I'll trust God will do that. No, Paul knew from God's Word exactly what to do when he needed to respond to those who had rejected the message of the gospel that he was giving to them. You see, what happens when we don't know the message, what happens when we don't have an a understanding of what God wants us to do is we always go in the wrong direction. We always bring about this man-centered ideology to say, well, this is going to help me get through this issue. One tendency for Paul, if he didn't know how to respond, would be to say, well, you know, maybe it's my approach. Maybe it's my approach to these individuals. Maybe I'll switch up my approach. You know, they're not responding to me. I'll change my methods a little bit. I'll stop sharing the gospel, and maybe I'll, you know, I'll try to emotionalize it, or, or maybe I'll promise them their best life now, and then they'll respond to the message of the gospel. When we bring in man-centered ideology to try to win converts, it always goes wrong. We just simply are called to preach the Word as Paul did and allow for the Spirit of God to create the fruit. You see, doing that will just create more distractions. You say, well, what about Paul responding to the persecution? As Paul is responding to the persecution here, you know, God certainly didn't give him any word on that, how to respond to persecution here. Imagine Paul didn't know how to respond to the persecution. What happens to us when we're persecuted? If someone rejects us and says, I don't want to hear anything any longer, we might say, wow, what did I do wrong there? Wow, maybe I was wrong here, or maybe they don't like me. Again, I should probably change up my message so people will like me a little bit longer. No. If we're persecuted, we can rejoice that we were called, counted worthy to suffer for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not wanting to be persecuted because we're hard to deal with, but rather, if they persecute us for proclaiming the message of the gospel, so be it. We know that God has called us to such a thing as that. Therefore, we must memorize God's Word. But someone might say today here in the year 2022, I can just Google it. I'll just Google it. If I need to know what I need to do, I'll just Google, you know, where does it say this in the Bible? That's not enough. It's not enough. You see, there is something to having the Word of God memorized in our hearts that will equip us far better than just relying on Google to tell us the passage when we need it. Why, why can I say that? When we have Scripture memorized in our heart and we face rejection, we won't need to pull out our phone and say, what do I do here? We will immediately be reminded of God's Word because it is not memorized in our phone, it's memorized in our hearts, and the Spirit of God will bring it to mind. When we have the Word of God memorized in our hearts, we don't, we don't need to have any momentary lapse of, well, anxiety or anxiousness. We're like, God, what do I do here? We know it because it's memorized. We know it because it is in our hearts. We know it because we can recount it to our memories because we have it implanted in our hearts. Now, I want us to consider one example of this in Acts chapter 5. One example of how Scripture memorization leads us forward in our witness. We've seen a couple from Paul. Just one other example before we close out our time together. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 to 42. And, and just to give you a little backstory here, the apostles had just been arrested. They're before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin has decided that they are no longer, that this, the apostles are no longer able to speak the word any longer, and to add injury to insult, they beat them before they let them go. We see the response of them here. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You say, why would they respond in this way? They've just been told they can't evangelize any longer, and they were also beaten on their way out of the Sanhedrin council. How could they respond in this way? Well, because they memorized God's Word. They knew God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Therefore, instead of having this pity party for themselves, they rejoiced, and they got back to doing what the people told them not to do. The, God, the Word of God compelled them forward over and against the Word of man, or the fear of man. They knew what God had said. They trusted Him. They had it in memory, and they were able to be equipped in evangelism to have a tremendous, tremendous witness. Now, one thing I caution you on in memorizing God's Word is this. Do not do it merely for the sake of head knowledge or to win a Bible trivia contest, but rather do it because you know that memorizing scripture, by memorizing Scripture, God will use it to better equip you in evangelism, and therefore you can bring greater glory to Him. We're all about bringing glory to God here. It's not, you know, I know this many verses, and I've got all these verses memorized here, and how many do you have memorized? No, all that we do is to the glory of God, and we know that if we have Scripture memorized, it will bring greater glory to God because we will be more equipped in evangelism. This is not only in responding to rejection, but on what to say, how to respond to the objections, how to, uh, how to proclaim to the Jew and also to the Gentile, so many ways in which God's Word equips us if we but have it memorized in our hearts. And so you say, well, how do I memorize Scripture? I want to know. I don't have any easy steps for you to be able to do this. I can only tell you what is helpful for me. As I seek to memorize Scripture, what I do if maybe I'm just memorizing one verse, repetition is always helpful for me. I read the text out loud. I, uh, you know, I read it uh, a, a number of times. I, I sing it maybe if I can make a song up to it. I do anything that I can repetitiveness with the repetitiveness so that it can be memorized so that it's always, it's always memorized in my heart. But if you say, well, what about a, a taking a larger chunk, like a, a, a large paragraph in the Scriptures? How would I do that? Well, what helps me is to identify the main idea of the passage. And when I can identify the main idea of the passage, well, then what I can do is I can better understand the rest of what the passage is saying to me, and therefore I can better internalize it. If I know what the passage is saying and the context of it, that helps me to better, better memorize it. But you've got to do what works best for you. But you must be committing yourself to memorizing the Word of God. And not just because I say it's probably good for us to do, but rather because God commands us to memorize His Word. Did you know that? Did you know that God commands you to memorize His Word? Colossians 3, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do you memorize something? By dwelling upon it. If you read it over, if you continually uh, uh, think about the words in your mind, you are dwelling on the Word of Christ. Therefore, you are memorizing the Word of Christ. Therefore, memorize God's Word. He has called you to that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 to 9 says it even more clearly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. 
Everything that we do should have God's Word in it, is what that, that passage is telling us. Everything, every word that comes out of our mouth should be biblical words, is what this text is saying. We should be so consumed by God's Word that it is all that we can ever speak of. Church, we must treasure God's Word. We must preoccupy ourselves with it every day, learning it, knowing it, memorizing it, realizing that if we do this, God will equip us in evangelism in ways in which we cannot even imagine. We see the record of Paul here, and we often marvel, how was Paul able to just reach so many people? I believe one reason for that was because he knew God's Word. He was equipped by God's Word because he memorized God's Word. And so, church, trust that as you give yourself to God in this, He will equip you to be a faithful witness wherever you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this day that You've given to us to come and to consider Your Word. God, we thank You for this, the, 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 the gifts that You have given to us as we have just been able to look at the life of Paul and his example as he was able to go into Corinth and be equipped by Your Word. God, I thank you that you have given us minds in which we are able to retain such knowledge, that you have given us minds that we are able to uh, obtain the wisdom that you have imparted through men over centuries, Lord, that you have preserved in the pages of your word, that that we can open up to Genesis 1-1 and read of what Moses wrote about as you have inspired him to do that. And and we can open up to Matthew and and read what you have inspired Matthew to speak on and and, and to Acts and to Romans and anywhere that we would ever open up to in your word, God, we know that, that we would hear you speak, Lord. We would hear your voice, God. We would hear what you were calling for us to do as you have preserved your word for us in this most wonderful way. God, I pray that you would inspire each of us to be uh, greater at memorizing your word. Again, not for the purpose of head knowledge, but rather to bring you greater glory, for that is our joy. That is our joy. And if it is not our joy, God, I pray that you would make it our joy. Make our joy be your joy. Make, make our seeking to give glory be, be totally to you, not magnifying ourselves, not glorifying ourselves, but rather exalting you as King of kings and Lord of lords. For you are worthy, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.